At Montana Bible College, I hope you have brought your Bible to chapel. Please turn in your Bibles, please, to the eighth chapter of Mark. And if you did not bring your Bible to chapel, well, look on with someone else who did. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, it is good that uh, we are here, that we're able to worship you and have the freedom, the privilege, to open your word together. Father, would you hit us where we live? Would you help us to receive from you and beyond that, to trust you? We pray in the name of your wonderful son. Amen. Etta, when I was in school out in Portland, I had a teacher whose testimony uh, I will share with you. Uh, his name was Jim Andrews, and he uh, related to us that when he had gone to seminary, he went to Dallas, uh, back in the old days of Dallas, and he said uh, he sat in the back of the class daring the teachers to teach him something. He said he had come from a, a small Christian liberal arts college in the Midwest, and he wasn't sure he really needed to be in school still. And so he would sit in the back, he says, with his arms crossed, saying, go ahead, teacher, see what you can do. And he said that was, that was a piece of his attitude. But what really aggravated him, he said, was there was this guy this classmate, who sat in the front row. And he was, he was riveted to everything that the prof was saying. And when the prof would crack a joke, funny or not, this guy would laugh. And he, he took all kinds of notes, and he asked all kinds of questions, and he was clearly engaged in what was going on in the classroom. Now, Brother Andrews said, scroll forward now 20 years. I'm in the mall, he says, with my wife and my 20-year-old daughter, and we're in the Christian bookstore. And she says, Dad, do we have the money? I'd like to buy this book. And he said, well, what, what book is it? And, and she told him, and he smiled. He smiled because he said, here was I, a big man on campus, big shot in the back row, bad attitude. He says, and here, 20 years later, nobody's ever heard of me, but everybody's heard of Chuck Swindoll. And uh, I think about that from time to time. I've, um, we're in the classroom, and um, I think about the gospel accounts and the fact that these disciples also were in the classroom. Much of their classroom was open air, to be sure, but can you imagine, just, just for a second, learning from Jesus? From Jesus. I mean, here he stands, there you sit, and he's saying things that, wow. And, and as the, the picture becomes clearer, you, you realize, as did his other hearers, this guy knows his stuff. He speaks with authority not like our scribes. And then even the wind and the waves obey him. Don't you think that if Jesus were your teacher, you'd be pretty well educated? 
pretty well know your stuff. Have your theology down. Well, um, here's the deal. Jesus wants us to be humble learners. And I've got these, this, this passage in Mark 8, I think, underscores that. If, if we just were to begin, say, uh, in verse 11, he's got a problem with the Pharisees. And this is just a little bit of, of background. Now, he had just fed 4,000 Gentiles. And they were hungry. They were in the wilderness, and, and he had fed them. And coming off that, the disciples were right there, right? They're handing out the food. They're, they're seeing a miracle unfold before their eyes once again, distributing the food and so forth and having a front row seat to all that Jesus was doing. Here come the Pharisees. It says in verse 11, they came out, they began to argue with him. And they said they're requesting from him a sign from heaven to test him. And what this means is they're saying, okay, this earthly stuff is well and good, but we might be able to, you know, duplicate that through slate of hand or something. Give us something from heaven. Open the sky. Do something like that. And he didn't even answer them. He says, no. He says, you are, uh, this generation seeks for sign no way. You don't get one. He turned and walked away. The Pharisees, you see, had all the answers in their, to their own satisfaction. Jesus had just fed 4,000 people who didn't have answers. And they received from him. That's contrasted with these Pharisees who had all the answers. And Jesus walked away from them. Now, I'm coming to understand as I, as I study uh, the Gospels that there is an, a deliberate arrangement of episodes. If you look at the, the Gospel accounts, you realize they don't all line up just perfectly. Often they do, particularly with Matthew and Mark, but sometimes they don't. And there are times when one Gospel writer will include something another Gospel writer won't. And this is one of those times. There's a deliberate arrangement here uh, that we need to understand. Now, the disciples had a lesson to learn. And this entire account from the 8th chapter of Mark is building to Mark chapter 9, which is the episode on the Mount of Transfiguration and so forth. It's, it's building toward that, but in anticipation of it, it's as if Jesus is showing these disciples two options for school. It's like he's saying to them, uh, where do you want to go to school? Do you want to go to school with, with the Pharisees and with Herod? those who have the answers and the power, or do you want to go to school with the humble and the needy? And that obviously will be reflected in attitude. Verse 14 in Mark 8 is a setup. It says that uh, they went away across the other side, verse 13 says, across the Sea of Galilee, and they had forgotten to take bread, and they didn't have any more and one loaf in the boat with them. They'd forgotten to take bread. That's the lead-off word. They forgot. And what this tips us off to initially is these, these guys are, have liabilities. They have weaknesses. They forget stuff. They're just people. They're just guys learning a whole new paradigm. Here they, they forgot to take bread. We're aware of their, of their weakness. I, I asked my dad this question once. Now, my dad in my experience, is rarely wrong. He would agree. At least that's the impression. <clears throat> and I remember about, oh, it's years ago now, because I remember Dad was 65 years old at the time. He's 84 now, so we're going back a ways. And I had just done something dumb. Whether it was something I had said, failed to say, something I, I had not completed, or maybe it was a dumb financial decision, I don't remember what it was. 
But I remember saying to my dad, seeing as he's 65, you know, Dad, at what point in life do you not do stupid things anymore? And he said, I don't know. I haven't reached that point yet. It's part of our liability. Well, let's look at the first school. And this is how I'll identify it. I call it the school of the Pharisees and Herod. Remember now, they've forgotten to take bread, verse 14 and verse 15. So he's giving orders to them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Connecting, obviously, the notion of leaven with their discussion about the bread. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had brought no bread. He's telling them, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and and the leaven of Herod. Now, I'm going to try to... to, uh, Describe that just a little bit. The the Pharisees, you see, were marked by pride, self-sufficiency and so forth, but that pride exhibited itself in arrogance. The Pharisees, not all of them were bad guys, but they do tend to get bad press in the New Testament, don't they? When we say Pharisee, nobody wants to be one of them. Pride and and arrogance. Uh, Verse 11, Can you uh, going back up, he's just fed 4,000 people, miraculously, and they take him on. They challenge him. They're, they're, this is worse than taking a knife to a gunfight. They're, they're challenging him, and I think about that interplay, and, and, and my mind scrolls to, to John's gospel. I'm just going to jump there in a second. And if you don't have a red-letter edition Bible, you should get one, because it can help sometimes. Jesus speaks, it's red. Other people speak, it's not. And, and look at what they do. I'm just going to whip through these verses, because in John... Um, in John 8, this is a very emotional interchange between Jesus and Pharisees. Um, they say, you're bearing a witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. They're telling God his witness isn't true. Now, that's sort of arrogant. They were saying to him in verse 19, where is your father? <laughs> I, think I, know where my, I think I know where I left at, Jesus is saying. They, they, they wanted to seize him, but his hour had not yet come. I'm scrolling down through a look at, say, verse 33. They said, we're Abraham's offspring. We've never yet been enslaved to anyone. Is that right? Do you see the pride? Look at verse 39. They said to Jesus, Abraham is our father, offhandedly suggesting that the identity of his father in an earthly sense is suspect. Maybe he's illegitimate. What arrogance. Then they say, we were not born of fornication, in verse 41. Uh, verse 48, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. <laughs> and it just gets worse. Until the end, they want to throw rocks at him and kill him. Pride and, and arrogance. And I've, I've, just, um, I've just got to say that I can remember Bible college. And I can remember, going back a number of years now, in hindsight, I look back on that, and, and there's a sense in which I knew more then than I know now. I was just sure of it. I was just sure of it. I was, I was reading Calvin's Institutes and realizing that the Arminians had a real serious problem. And I, and I remember, you know, here, here's how it works. It, it, the, are, can Calvinistic people be proud? Oh, my, yes. You don't get it. You don't understand election, predestination, foreknowledge, and how that... You don't get it? What's wrong with you? That's pride. 
you'll have discussions like this, but none of you should get it this animated about it. And, and an Arminian will say, hey, I chose Jesus. That was my choice. It was my will. Okay. Could that be prideful? Well, sure. We're liable, right? We're liable, just like these disciples. I remember this guy, when I was in Bible college, this guy, he was, he was old. He was like 30. And um, he got out of Bible college a convinced Calvinist. So convinced that nobody really wanted to be around him, so he had to start his own church. And he was able to, um, he was able to get a storefront church going in a city, and it happened to have been previously a, a, a little mom-and-pop grocery store with a, with a butcher shop in the back. And so he carted the butcher block, you know, big, huge, heavy butcher block out front, converted it into a pulpit, which he could pound with vigor and say, we serve meat here. <laughs> this is a Calvinistic church. We're only going to serve meat. I don't know whatever happened to him. But Pharisees' pride and arrogance, the Herodians are now Herod. We're talking Herod Antipas. He says, beware of the influence of, of the Pharisees. Beware of the, that pride and arrogance. Be also aware, though, of the influence of Herod. He's not a Pharisee. He's not even much of a Jew. But he's the king. Beware of him. Pride and, in his case, moral license. After all, he had taken his brother's wife. After all, John the Baptist had been in his face saying, you had not to do that. And many things John the Baptist rebuked him for and counseled him for and exhorted him for. Pride and moral license. Forget the arrogance. How about moral license? Like, I can probably do what I want. Here's how it works. The rules don't apply to me because I'm who I am. The rules don't apply to me, or, or I could get myself out of this. I know I, I, know I shouldn't, but I think I can get myself out. Or, maybe even more insidious, I, don't think I, I, I think I'll be exempt from consequences because I'm who I am. Pride and moral license. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of... You know what leaven is? It is Yeast. Okay, now, I, I had to look into this because I wasn't satisfied with just that classic definition. You know, it gets into bread dough and makes it rise. You punch it. That's, that's the fun part. It sinks and then it comes back and rises again. You throw it in the oven for baby and me. And um, so I got on Wikipedia. Where else? Because I want to know what's going on with this stuff. I don't want to think hey, it's just a something you stick in the dough, and it, it, it spreads, it's insidious, it's hard to see, but you can see the effects of it. It is microscopic. Leaven is yeast, and, and according to the greatest scientific minds of the day, I hate to say this, some of you, this is going to hurt some people here, but yeast is, yeast is a fungus. It's a fungus. I mean, even saying the word fungus makes us go, oh. Okay, it's a fungus. You want to know what else is a fungus? Yes, mushrooms. So when you eat mushrooms, just think, this is cousin to athlete's foot. <laughs> because athlete's foot is a fungus. And so are other bodily skin things that we won't discuss. But I will discuss this one because it comes very close to home. 
Fungus is also ringworm. Isn't that an awful word? Ringworm. I won't ask if you've had it, but I have. <laughs> I will never forget my experience with ringworm. I was in the ninth grade, and here on my left hand, a spot appeared, and it, and it got bigger and bigger, and then these little bumps were in it, and it turned red, and it just kept spreading until pretty soon it was up in my knuckles and wrapped clear around my palm, and I'm thinking, I don't know what this is. I could be a leper, <laughs> or better, a zombie. <laughs> I wasn't sure where it was going. Uh, thankfully, back in those days, there were these um, dermatologists who, who had a solution, and took care of my ringworm before it completely. I mean, you can imagine how it would look like today if, if it had run its course. It's a fungus. Beware of it. So I thought, okay, I want to prevent this. Preventative measures. So I went a little bit further in my research and came up with these uh, preventative measures against ringworm. I'm going to share them with you. Just in case you ever find yourself becoming a zombie. Keep your skin and feet clean and dry. Got that? Especially if you're living communally. Because you don't know what that other person brings to the floor, literally. Shampoo regularly, especially after haircuts. Shampoo regularly. Third, do not share clothing, towels, hairbrushes, combs, headgear, or do I even need to say toothbrushes? Oh, it's a lip fungus they haven't identified yet, right? Or other personal care items. Such items should be thoroughly cleaned and dried after use. Fourth, wear sandals or shoes at the gym, at the, in the locker room, and at the swimming pool. Keep your feet away from other people's fungus. And this is my, my favorite is the last one. <laughs> it says... Avoid touching pets with bald spots. <laughs> so if your pet has a bald spot, there's really only one sure solution. Beware. Uh, how about preventative, though? Preventative, spiritual, moral fungus. There are some preventative steps, and I'm sure you're aware of these, but I'm going to share them anyway. You need to pray. Read your Bible prayer every day. And you'll do that in class, please. I would recommend that you not let your class works uh, become your devotional life. That may work for a few, but it doesn't work for most. Meet with God. Get with Jesus personally and regularly uh, in the Word and in prayer. That's like a given, but there are two other steps, and we try to help with, with, with both of these, but this is why. One is accountability. If someone who is close to you and loves you and says, you know what, you're, you're kind of arrogant, or... I don't think you should go there. You're going to get your tail in a crack over there. Listen to them. That's accountability. That has to do with, with discipleship. You know, I remember when I was in the service, I grew up thinking I was fine. I don't know, maybe some of you are like that. But when I got in the service and I reached a certain point in my training where I was given a roommate, and this roommate and I, well, we mostly got along, but not always, and then things started to get worse. And I remember, I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, you know what? He kind of got in my face one time. He says, you know what? You are not the easiest person to live with. 
Of course, I knew he was wrong. No, but, but that helped me. It kind of jarred me to thinking, boy, why would he say that if it weren't, there weren't some truth to it? So accountability is big, but the other is, preventatively, ministry. Do you know why? Because when you're serving, your mind is off of you. And it's where it belongs, on someone else, on Jesus and on someone else. So dig in. When the brother gets up and says, we need a wanna workers, go do a wanna. That's great. But sink your time and your energy and your focus into that kid. And do it as a service so that the mind is trained to look elsewhere and the pride and, and arrogance and the, and the pride and immorality becomes less and less of an issue. School of the Pharisees and Herod. And finally, the school of the humble and needy. And it's interesting here that this is only in Mark. Beginning in verse 22, they came to Bethsaida. This is only in Mark. And the reason it's only in Mark is because Peter is responsible for the content of Mark's gospel. Peter the Apostle. This is, this is his recall. What he's really doing is he's saying, you know, we were the disciples, we were there, and this is how we learned. So we, he's setting us up here with a very deliberate contrast, in hindsight. He's contrasting the, the Pharisees and Herod on the one hand and their pride with this blind guy from Bethsaida and his humility. That's what he's doing. And in the next chapter, he's going to declare, Peter's going to, going to declare that you are the Messiah. The light's going to come on. But this is how it went. Peter, you see, knew about humble and needy. About the third denial of Jesus on the night of Jesus' betrayal, it dawned on him that you're not the best disciple around, are you? You're not as hot as you thought you were, despite your previous bravado. So he, he gives us this account. Verse 22, they come to Bethsaida. That is not an accidental geographic reference. Because Bethsaida figures in the 11th chapter of Matthew's gospel. Bethsaida and Chorazin, Jesus cursed them. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. If the miracles had been done in you that were done in Tyre and Sidon, or in Tyre and Sidon that were done in you, they would have repented a long time ago. It's a cursed place. And don't you think it's interesting that from a cursed place like Bethsaida, Jesus would call this loser. Because if you're a blind guy in this culture, either you sinned or your parents, I get that from John 9, something's wrong with you, you're cursed and your place is cursed. But here he comes. Jesus shows himself sufficient. It's by design that he takes him out of town, out of the village, takes him out of that place. And, and in identification with Jesus, removing him from that cursed place, it's like saying, okay, you're with me, you're fine. Despite your background, despite your hometown. And then he executes this very interesting miracle. He spits in his eyes. Brought him out of the village, spits in his eyes, lays his hands on him, and speaks. He does this, when, when Jesus uh, performs a healing, he often does it to accommodate the, the, what the faculties that his, his uh, patient does have. This guy can't see, but he can hear. And he can feel, and he can be led. And so Jesus approaches him from that standpoint. Plus, the, the, culturally, there was understood to be some medicinal value in transfer of 
saliva. This was before they knew, of course, about ringworm. Um, so the, and I, I think this is a very interesting miracle. He spits on his eyes, lays his hands on him, and says, do you see anything? And the guy says, I see men. I see them like trees, only walking around. And I think, you know what? He has found trees before. <laughs> How do you think he found them? <laughs> ah, okay, that's a tree. This one moves. That's a person. So it's like a, it's like a person. A tree is like a person walking around. Okay, I'm starting to get it. And so Jesus revisits him. And then he sees clearly. This is an incremental healing. Isn't that interesting? Why did he do it this way? Why couldn't he just, like he did all the other times, why didn't he just go, boom, you can see. A little clay, a little rub, and you're good. Why didn't he do that? Why did he do it incrementally? My suggestion is this. He did it for the disciples. Because Peter is taking all this in. And he's realizing, we are slow. We're slow to get it. We're slow to get it. But Jesus stays with us until we do. Brothers and sisters, we learn this way. We learn by uh, repetition. We learn incrementally. We're slow. And and the, the guy who is humble and needy doesn't need to be convinced of that. And, and nor should we. Learn what you can. Come back and learn it again. And realize the whole time that this is all of us. This is, it's fascinating to me how Christians, we Christians are so quick to, to say, oh, that other person, he or she, they just don't measure up. They just don't get it yet. Hello. We are all in process. These guys had been with Jesus for months, yea, years. And they were just getting it. There is no room in this equation, is there, for pride. None at all. So we learn. We learn that way. We learn from Jesus. And now, where this is going, if we were to follow the the narrative through, we would see this is going to that amazing pronouncement. Who do the people say that I am? Well, they're wrong. Who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. Ah, light's coming on. But even then... They didn't understand all about Messiah. They didn't know that he would be going to the cross. That was yet to come. He had to explain that yet. Do you see? They're learning. Don't be discouraged. Just keep learning. I will close with the 11th chapter of Matthew. Interesting, in Matthew 11, you know these verses. I'll just read them to you, and then you can feel proud of yourself for already knowing them. Um, But this is the same chapter that he pronounced the woe on Bethsaida. Chorazine, and, and the chapter ends this way. 11.28, come to me, Jesus says. Come to me, just like that blind guy. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. The humble and the needy, come to me. I will give you rest. We don't come to theologians. We don't come to doctrinal statements. We don't come to positions. We come to Jesus. He's the one we approach. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My load is light. Come to me. Let's pray together. Father, as we learn, and we all are, we are so glad that you are our teacher, that you are our coach, that you accompany us. 
that you never leave us, never forsake us, that you've provided us with resources in your word and in the church by your spirit, and you are working in us and finishing what you've started gradually, incrementally, slowly, but you're doing it. God, help us to be humble and needy learners. Help us to avoid the arrogance of intellect, the arrogance of immorality, and rather simply and humbly and regularly come to you. Lord, as these brothers and sisters begin their, their year here, would you help each one, meet each one where they are? Don't leave them there. Don't leave me here. But cause each of us to grow in our appreciation of you, in our knowledge and understanding of you. And would you live through us, God, as we would serve you? We'll give you the glory. You are the hero, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.